In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And in VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Tim, another week, another episode. Got uh, lots to get into, but of course, as we start all Monday episodes with, what have you had recently that you loved? Oh, I'm glad you're asking me that today, Zach, because mm-hmm. we have had a very exciting time in the VinePair office recently. It's Chardonnay season. We're doing yeah. our annual roundup. Uh, Keith Beaver is doing the hard work there, and Hannah Stab also, you know, assisting him with that. We've been having some really, really fantastic wines arrive at the office. A lot of familiar old friends there: uh, Maya Camas, Chateau Montalena, Stag's Leap. Um, I am Zach, a person who does enjoy Chardonnay that's seen some time in oak, responsible oak usage. Uh, I will add, but. The wine that I, the Chardonnay specifically that I want to call out today, interested to see if you've had this or hear your thoughts on it. So it's called Cory Creek Coquillage. No. So this is a 100% Chardonnay from the North Fork of Long Island, I believe, fermented on wild yeast in stainless steel. But most importantly, this wine ages in contact with seashells. which the French speakers out there might have known from my terrible pronunciation of the (laughs) name there, which means seashell. So, you know, I found it interesting where, you know, there's this thing in wine that people say, whether it's, you know, grown by the sea or vinified by the sea or aging by the sea, you maybe pick up some of that salinity in the sea air. And I don't know what to to what extent that's true scientifically. Our minds certainly go there through, um, you know, some kind of, I don't know, Power of suggestion. Power of suggestion, indeed. Yes, thank you for helping me with that. (laughs) But this wine definitely did have pronounced mineral notes, a saltiness to it that worked really well. And again, this is not a a wine that I would want to see aging in like new oak or anything, but a very interesting type of wine and definitely the first I've tasted that's um, aged on seashells. Yeah, I don't know that I've ever try to wine like that but now i'm kind of curious i mean i've certainly had wines that were from you know vineyards with lots of seashells in them and stuff like that but that's definitely taking it to a new level that's super cool yeah how about yourself zach what have you been enjoying well since we're, we're talking chardonnay i did have a beautiful bottle of 2014 ridge chardonnay uh from down in uh, the santa cruz mountains the other day uh just a, I, I mean spoken before on the pod about my general respect for and appreciation of the winemaking kind of across the board at Ridge. Um, And Chardonnay is, you know, not a big part of their production. Obviously, they're much more well-known for their Cabernet-based wines and Zinfandel-based wines and stuff like that. But uh, always a really beautiful bottle. Um, Caitlin and I had gotten it when we were visiting probably in 2016 or, yeah, it must have been 2016. So it was fun to open that and have that with her uh, a few nights ago. And then on my trip to Portland, I had a, a few cocktails, not a lot. I was down there with my son and my dad. It was a three-generation Jabal trip, but nice. I did sneak away once uh, the, the young and the old were asleep. Uh, <laughs> I got to go out to just the, just the hotel bar, but, you know, it was a, a nice bar called Swine uh, Moonshine and Cocktails. And uh, they had an interesting drink uh, that the bartender made for me. Called, they called uh, Terry's Pelota, which was a tequila-based drink uh, that used Amaro Nonino, uh, Liquor 43, um, Antoreas Poblano uh, and some chocolate bitters. So kind of a, I kind of wanted to, you know, sort of said like, you know, it's kind of my nightcap. I wanted a nothing, nothing super sweet, but like a touch of sweetness. And 
really good. The intro Reyes brought some spiciness to kind of contrast the sweetness and uh, the chocolate notes. So kind of a vague nod to sort of, yeah, that kind of spicy chocolatey thing. Even if I think the inspiration for the drink, as the bartender was describing to me, was kind of uh, like those, um, I don't know if you've ever had one before, Tim, the uh, like chocolate oranges that you can find here. I don't know if they're a, Ooh, if they're yeah. a widely distributed thing, but uh, they're kind of like a in the shape of an orange and they're yeah terry's chocolate orange right exactly so yeah that's the terry's pelota yeah it was good uh a fun drink and kind of not what i probably would have gravitated towards on the menu otherwise but uh sometimes it's nice when you just kind of uh put your you know put yourself in the hands of the bartender and let them do what they do and i you know not only does that sound like a delicious drink it's also a very natural segue into um, Mm -hmm. something we'll be talking about today at least right yeah exactly well yeah let's let's get to it so we, you know, you sort of brought to my attention, and I've sort of seen this before that, you know, we we're talking about some of these, I guess you'd call them, they're not new drinks. In fact, their whole point is kind of that they are a, a much more kind of elevated, if you can put it that way, expression of, they're not exactly classic cocktails. I don't know, uh, s- s- sort of simple cocktails, bar staples, dive bar cocktails, maybe you'd put yeah. it that way. Um, and, and Tim, since you're the man who is in the midst of this more than I am. You want to you kind of lay out what a few of these are, then we can kind of talk about what this trend might mean. Yeah, definitely. Um, so actually, we spoke about him recently. I believe it was on last Monday's show, but yeah. a recent trip to uh, Shinji's, and some folks might have read about this online too. So they have a screwball that's served inside um, an orange... Screwdriver, right? A sc- uh, sorry, a screwdriver, <laughs> yes. I always forget that, you know, we don't use that name in the UK for that drink, by the way. It's just like orange juice and vodka. So the mm-hmm. first time someone ever mentioned that to me, an American friend, I'm like, what the hell is a, screw- a screwdriver? I was going to call it a screwball again. But yes, <laughs> anyway, I'm getting off topic here. The screwdriver is served inside an orange with a straw. To my mind, it kind of had this kind of creamsicle flavor to it. And it was very delicious. And again, that cocktail program is very highbrow. There's a lot that goes into these drinks. But this is definitely the one I think that I'm seeing most online when people are visiting there and posting about it too. There's some other examples that I think... I think this speaks as well to this trend of nostalgia that everyone's been talking mm-hmm. about kind of post-pandemic. But there's a bar down in the Lower East Side called Lullaby and they have a Dole Whip cocktail it's interesting, actually, they kind of shake half of the drink and then top it with the Dole Whip and mix it all together. Again, when that bar launched just over a year ago, that was the one drink that got all the press. And then one that maybe flies a little bit more under the radar, but at Porchlight here, they have an elevated version of the Long Island iced tea where they're making their own cola, carbonating it, and doing all the, you know, the kind of bells and whistles that come with that. So I find it interesting that we're seeing these kind of highbrow versions of of lowbrow drinks and yeah. this trend that's developing. Yeah, and I, I think it's really interesting for, for two reasons. And the first is that I think we see this same kind of trend, and, and you've probably seen it at least as much as I have, Tim, in food, right, where we kind of go through this phase where people are putting, you know, you can, it's almost impossible to sort of pick out just one example. You know, you've got a some restaurant will have a you know, an elevated sloppy Joe, or they'll have, you know, their take on a Twinkie or whatever, right? Like all these kinds of things where there's this attempt to kind of draw on flavors that are perhaps, yeah, nostalgic or 
you know, kind of immensely recognizable to people, but to say, you know, we're going to make this version of it that is, you know, far more sophisticated, far more complex, and, you know, <clears throat> candidly, far more expensive than the sort of version that you might have encountered before. And so I think that's, you know, that's kind of a, a, a thing that is always going on, but I think has its moments where it kind of steps more into the fore and then the, that sort of trend recedes and something else takes its place. And then that kind of style of of approach to food or drink comes back. I do think it's interesting to discuss whether, yes, this sort of post-pandemic nostalgic wave is driving this or whether, for lack of a better word, are people are people trying to drink these ironically? Like, is that what we think is going on? Like, because because I think a lot of the people driving this um, trend are not themselves people who are nostalgic for these cocktails, right? These cocktails predate them. I mean, they really kind of predate you and me, mm-hmm. and I think they certainly predate a lot of people who are the audience for this. You know, the screwdriver, the Long Island iced tea; those were really kind of nineteen eighties drinks. And I was born in the nineteen eighties. I was not drinking cocktails in the nineteen eighties. <laughs> and I, again, you know, you kind of have to be at least a decade older than me or more to even really, I think, have a lot of points of connection to these cocktails. And so I don't really, I'm not sure whether it's so much that like people are like, oh man, I remember this drink from my youth or as much as it's just like, wow, look at this goofy thing that people used to drink, but now we're drinking a really fancy version of it. Yeah, that's a great point about, you know, the people that are maybe ordering these and drinking them. I do think there's a, there is a touch of the irony there, right? And I don't know. I think we also see that maybe in fashion at the moment, too, with people kind of mm. returning to the 90s trend. Like, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I don't think that was the best era for fashion. But again, <laughs> listen, that's not my lane. I'll leave that to Adam whenever he comes yeah. back. Um, I think it's also interesting that oftentimes these drinks that are appearing on these menus, they don't really capture the essence of the bar and the rest of the bar program. So, yeah. Down at Lullaby, you know, I, I, I've gotten to know the, the co-founders there, Jake and Harrison, and I think they have a wonderful cocktail program there. And I hope they don't mind me saying it, but the Dole Whip is my least favorite drink on their menu. I think everything else they do speaks more to the, the, the levels of mixology that are going on in that place. Same with Shinji's, too. I think the Vesper is a much better drink that they have there. Or all the other ones, I do get why people are ordering it. But I have a question here for you, Zach. Like, sure. Do you think that's a pro or a con? Because on the one hand, you do have it's it's something that maybe does really well on Instagram and social media, and also media itself, right? Like publications will cover it, mm-hmm. so then people come in. But if that doesn't really represent the rest of your bar program, then is that ultimately a bad thing? I think that's a really fascinating question, and something that, in one way or another, I think we've we've sort of tried to discuss on the pod a few times before. And I think it, it we the reason we keep bringing it up is a it keeps being topical and b I don't know that we have a clear cut answer at this point. I think one piece of it is: do you as a bar run the risk of consigning yourself to a level of gimmickry and kind of one off you know kind of um, patronage than than you would per- perhaps like? So if people say, "Oh, I saw that Dole Whip on Instagram or on TikTok and it looks super cool and I want to go have it." But they go in and they have that drink and they're like, okay, I've done that thing. Like, is that really the kind of bar you want to operate? Like, maybe if your the Dole Whip is really profitable for you and you can crank them out and, like, it's okay that people are just popping in for that and then off to do whatever else and never come back. Certainly, you know, there's enough density of cocktail drinkers in 
Manhattan or whatever to make that fly, perhaps. But but it's a it's kind of a, a tough way to make a go of it, and and maybe a little dispiriting to the staff in a way, right? Like, do you want to be the bartender who makes you know three hundred of one drink in a night and you know fifty other drinks all told? Like that's probably not exactly what people are that excited about. I think the other piece of it is is it's this piece of like, yeah, are you setting consumer expectations correctly? Because someone sees, oh, this bar has an elevated Long Island iced tea, they might imagine a whole bar concept built around let's kind of do elevated versions of that era of cocktails. And if in fact everything else on the list is very different and very has a different sort of aesthetic sensibility to it and flavor profile, et cetera, well, the kind of person who wants to go drink 80s style cocktails, whether ironically or not, may be a little bit underwhelmed. And especially if they, you know, I don't know if the Long Island iced tea is a drink. Well, certainly people have had, will have two or three of them in a night. That may not end well for them, but it's certainly been done. You know, there's the, it's that perennial question, right? Is like, how valuable is just pure exposure to a bar versus building a program that brings people in again and again? Yeah. Like ultimately, do you want to become known as, oh, the Dole Whip place? Like, I, I don't know. I mean, I think definitely. If you're opening up a new bar, I do see the merit in it because it is a low-lift way to get media and coverage on social media, like we've said. Mm -hmm. But then you're catering to the TikTok crowd. And again, (laughs) I don't know whether that... if, If you're taking your cocktails very seriously, I don't know whether all of the TikTok crowd is who you perhaps want to be catering to again, because are they going to try your martini variation? Are they going to have your whiskey drink, your mezcal drink, or are they coming in for that, getting the video and then leaving? I definitely think that trying to cater to that algorithm specifically is probably a losing battle in the long run and not something you want to be doing as a, as a bar program. But I think also like not even just, lowbrow drinks but i have seen this idea of like signature drinks being Mm -hmm. pitched to myself as a as an editor both from publicists and writers i've seen that a lot i i I remember another bar that opened up in um in greenpoint here i'm forgetting the name of it but i remember that they had friesling on the menu and they just kept hammering home this point of like we're having friesling I actually happened to stop by by chance. I was in the neighborhood and walked in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is the Friesling place. And they actually had good cocktails and other drinks on the menu. I probably wouldn't have gone there before if I'm like, look, this is a this this bar also opened like in the pandemic. But this was a trend from like 2018, 2017, yeah. you know, Froze Pinot Frigio. So, like, you know, guys, you arrived a bit late to the party. But, yeah, that might actually put me off as a drinker. Yeah, and I think you know it's important to kind of remember that there are a lot of different ways to build a successful bar program, and one of them can be definitely centered around, um, you know, sort of your more, for lack of a better word, kind of you know getting your kind of one-off, you know, whether it's social media crowd or people have just heard about you from the one drink that you're known for, and they want to pop in and have that, and like you can make that work. I think it's just when when that drink is at odds with the rest of your mission in some way, that can be challenging. It can be challenging, like I said, for guests. It can be challenging for staff. And it can be kind of challenging to, you know, when when that <laughs> drink drops off the TikTok algorithm or when, uh, you know, you're kind of no longer trendy or when the people who are like, ooh, I got to try that have tried it once, it's kind of hard to know where you're what you're left with. And so obviously, 
it's not useful advice for me to say, well, you should just build a great bar program that everyone likes and that you get a ton of regulars. Like, obviously, that's what most bars are attempting to do. And and there are a lot of different ways to do it. And I think, as we've talked about a bunch on the show over the years, like, there's no one right approach for any, you know, for any bar, for any venture, because, you know, people want to drink different people want to drink differently and people want to drink differently different days of the week different weeks of the year etc so so obviously you know it, it takes a kind of a diverse ecosystem of bars to have a strong bar scene and to be and there are a lot of different niches that a bar can fill and be very successful but i think that question of a signature drink right stepping again as you said outside of what we might consider more of these kind of elevated lowbrow drinks or whatever i don't know i i I think that there's there's something about, you know, in the same way that a restaurant might have a dish that they're just really well known for, and that can be, you know, again, kind of a blessing and a curse in some sense. I, I'm trying to think about like some of my favorite bars and whether I would say they have a signature cocktail. I don't know. I'm going to continue to ponder this. Do you, is that something you would say is true of the bars that you love best? Do they have a kind of a signature cocktail, Tim? I think it's kind of a 50-50 split. I think that there are bars where I'm like, oh, I'm in the mood for this drink. I'm going to go there because they do mm-hmm. it very well. But they might not perhaps be known for it. And then there are other bars that are specifically known for certain drinks. I find it interesting as well, just that idea of launching a new bar, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're not launching with this signature drink, how else do you become known? Like, do you want to... So it's going to be the concept is another selling point, right? But it's hard to get a good concept and not feel gimmicky. So who wants to open another speakeasy? Do we need another speakeasy? (laughs) Do we need another bar in the back of a pretend grocery store? Like, that is actually a great bar, the one that's like that in New York. But we don't need another one. So therefore, maybe you want to lean into a specific style of drinks like tiki. But then you perhaps ostracize drinkers who don't like tiki cocktails, so will never cross your door. So otherwise, you just open and you're like, yeah, we're just a good bar. We have a good bar program. We have a good background. That's kind of a tough sell. And certainly from a media point of view, right, when we talk about coverage so or just word of mouth, like, oh, have you been to this new bar that's opened? No, what's the deal? They just have good drinks, right? Like, that's kind of a selling point. And maybe you'll, you'll forget that, but... Have you been to the Dole Whip place? That's a lot yeah, more memorable, for sure. And I think it—I think it also again sort of is a question almost of the uh, proprietor's ambitions, right? Like, I think it's totally plausible that you could look to open a solid, like, well-executed sort of you know neighborhood bar in the same way that we talk about like neighborhood restaurants and stuff like that. And and your ambition may never to be, oh, I don't want to be trendy on on social, and I don't necessarily need a ton of earned media publicity or whatever, because like we're looking to meet a need that we see being unmet in this, in this community, whatever that, wherever you are. And obviously, you know, the, the less competitive the bar scene is in any given place, the easier it is to kind of just open a bar that aspires to do kind of a lot of things pretty well and perhaps be successful with it. And it's a thing that, you know, is of course important to note that like, especially in New York, the competition is so intense. There are so many bars. And, and so the need for a, sort of point of differentiation, a distinguishing feature or a distinguishing drink or whatever is much more pressing than it might be in other parts of the country where just being a a bar that does, you know, kind of quality, relatively high level cocktails well consistently 
is probably enough of a selling point. I mean, I think there are, you know, not a ton, there are a lot of places that could use more bars like that, to be completely honest. And, and yeah, I think, I think it's, it's a fascinating question of, of that, you know, how do you, I guess the other piece of it, I guess I should say is, it's also this question of, as a bar, do you kind of, how much do you balance burning bright right away versus sustainability? And I, don't, I mean, I don't mean sustainability necessarily in a sort of environmental sense in this case. I mean it more like, can you can you build a successful business model that can last for a number of years? Because I think the downside to having a lot of, you know, kind of stuff that gets you attention early on is that, as we said, trends change. You know, social media, that stuff is really fickle. And what is super trendy and, and appealing in one moment can a short amount of time later be just kind of out the window and, you know, it can be, I don't want to say dangerous, wrong way to put it, but it can be ephemeral to build a concept or build a, an opening. I mean, you said it, right? The bar that was heavily into promoting Friesling, by the time they opened, that trend was already over. And so, you know, there's that part of it, right? Like the lead time to open a bar can be long and mm-hmm. you know, who knows what's going to be trendy from the time you kind of come up with a concept and maybe sell investors on it or get some backing or just even start sending out PR, you know, kind of hits to when it's actually fully up and running and people are going there. Like there's no guarantee that what was trendy six months or a year ago will remain trendy. Uh, In fact, almost a guarantee that it won't. And so, yeah, I think, I think it's, you know, it's this interesting thing of like, how do you balance that desire for the immediate hit of attention and, and traffic versus, potentially something that is more long-term stable yeah i don't want to oversimplify this too you know i I, a i don't want to be you know offhand references to lullaby as the dole whip bar you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. i don't think people are out there saying that it's just it's just a very clear example of what we're talking about here i do think it's also possible though for the bar to evolve itself so i think this is a great way to get people in the door initially as we've been speaking about and if that is maybe the more social media savvy crowd in the beginning those folks will then move on to the next spot but as i mentioned you know just that lullaby example so a they've been open you know a year now just a little over a year um, one of their co-founders harrison snow we actually included it in our recently launched fine pair 50 list because mm. We here at VinePair are of the belief that this is a young Gen Z bartender that's really, you know, doing things, doing incredible things with cocktails. And I personally believe this will be one of the new mentors for the next generation of bartenders that we're seeing or like one of the sh- the brightest stars of this newer, newer generation of bartenders. And I think Lullaby has established itself as like this kind of party place on the weekend, but also a spot that really does crank out amazing cocktails too and caters to maybe younger younger drinkers of legal drinking age so i think anecdotally that that reputation has evolved and you can still get the dole whip there but i i think it's a credit to the work that they've done that they're not just known as that place now right um the freezing place i'm not so sure but i felt like it was i felt like it was important to add that too i didn't want to like i said didn't want to oversimplify or <laughs> or you know throw throw any shade on the fine work that they're doing there no i think i think it's uh it's definitely true that a bar can and should evolve over time and will go through iterations and and you know hit on different concepts and sometimes it will be 
it'll and even as you said can have a sort of different face that it presents to the world one part of the week than another or one week out of the year or another um those are all kind of signs of i think of a, of a well you know kind of a, a good concept and a well-executed bar is to be able to be a lot of different things to a lot of people and i guess that to me is kind of the takeaway here right which is if if these whether it's elevated kind of lowbrow cocktails or signature cocktails of any kind or anything like that are in service to this idea of allowing you to maybe reach a broader audience, help kind of bring people like that into your bar, into bars more generally, and kind of create that space where people feel comfortable going in and being like, I know that this drink that's served inside an orange is going to be both delicious and I'm going to have fun with it in a way that maybe some of the other stuff at Shinji's might initially seem intimidating to people. Like, I think the Vesper that you've described sounds fantastic, but for some people that might be like, wow, that's a lot. Like, that's just, I'm not sure I'm ready to do that. But but a drink that tastes like an orange creamsicle that has kind of a whimsical nature to it might just make people more comfortable with the concept in, in the first place. And that, I think, is obviously, is you know can be really good for a bar, especially bars that do have sort of aspirations to really high quality cocktail production because you know you know those places can come across as intimidating to a lot of drinkers in a way that you know a bar that's like hey you know come get a beer and a shot is just not going to feel intimidating yeah definitely and i think we'll you know all this chat of shinji's i think next time you're in town zach we're gonna have to go go and check it out for ourselves and enjoy one together Tim, you and I have an extremely long list of bars we have to go to. I'm going to have to <laughs> gonna have to go on a very uh, intense cleanse both before and after, but it'll be a lot of fun. Sounds fantastic. All right, man. Well, this has been great. Always a fun conversation. If you guys have thoughts on this topic or any of the other things we've covered on the show, please email us, podcast at vinepair.com. Also, a reminder, please uh, rate, review. We'd love to hear from you all in, in all those ways. And, uh, you know, whether, like I said, whether it's email, social media, through your podcast apps, however, uh, we'd love to get feedback from you all. And that helps us make the show better week in, week out. So, Tim, again, thanks so much and speak to you on Friday. Thanks, Zach. Have a fantastic week. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.